Years ago, when I was in my early teens, my family went on a hike, a trip through the high country of uh, Yosemite, um, the High Sierras. And it was about a 10-day trip, and um, one of the best parts of that trip was coming through to the end, and the very last, very high point that we were on, we stopped, and we were able to look back through the trail that we had blazed. We didn't really blaze it, but we, we thought we did. And in that moment, there was a sense of accomplishment that we made it through the trek. You guys ever have that feeling where you finish a hike or maybe finish a project and you think back through the steps that got there? The various parts of the trek, the individual stories, the challenges, the rewards that occurred along the way. And the overall trip becomes not just one big trek, one ambiguous memory in your mind, but it becomes a mosaic. It becomes um, kind of this montage of, of various pictures and experiences. Going through Ephesians as a church has been like that for me. This book has cemented so much of a new understanding of the basis of the good news of Jesus Christ in my life. I hope that it's the same for you. It cemented all he has done for us with regard to salvation. Such a great song to sing right before we step into the word. But it's also cemented the response that God calls for in our lives individually and collectively. And in the midst of our year-long journey through Ephesians, through both the relational pain of losing people we love dearly as we've made adjustments to the church, and seeing relational healing and growth for many here today, I can honestly say that this book has been more powerful for me personally than any teaching series we've gone through. I've felt myself and I've watched our church change in ways that I haven't seen previously, and I rejoice in the Lord for that. As we close the book today, I want to give thanks for the beauty and challenge of this book and set our hearts with purpose to remember God's love towards his church. And I want us to answer the call to be the church that shows by our lives, by the way we love each other, and by the way we serve a lost and dying world, that we do indeed love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love that is incorruptible. Let's read our section of text this morning from Ephesians 6. And we're going to see Paul close down the letter. Verse 21. So you also, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The first thing we see this morning is something that we have seen throughout the letter to Ephesus. I want you to write this down. It may not be here in the blatant text, but underneath it and coming through it is this idea the church is most effective as a unified body of diverse members. It's really hard to teach a salutation, just FYI. When I get to the end of the letter or the beginning of the letter, I always think, okay, what am I going to teach? Grace and peace. Okay, let's teach grace and peace, right? But there's something greater underneath that. This wasn't just a, hey, what's up, right? Yo. Okay, that's not what it was. There's something greater underneath it. And when we started working through this letter almost exactly one year ago, I told you that I was excited to be moving through this letter because it's attached to a rich background and history of the early church. 
But I also knew that there was something underneath this that would propel us forward as a church in who we were supposed to be. So many people I run into think of church as nothing more than the place they attend in order to get their ears tickled and get their encouraging message for the week that'll get them through the depressing moments. But guys, that's not what the church is to be. The church is to be something so much more. I knew that this letter would give us an understanding of not only what the church looked like then, but also what characterizes the true Christian church across all times and locales. Over the last year, we've seen how this book is intimately linked to the Old Testament and the promise that God had given Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. The promise given to Eve even in in Genesis 3 there. And to her offspring that we now see is the true church indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That the offspring of Eve, the ones that would be redeemed, would fight against the enemy, the serpent, and crush his head. It was the actual offspring, Jesus Christ himself, who started that, the first fruits of the resurrection, and we have been joined together with him. We've seen this letter attached to the character of God's people in the Old Covenant, and how the church was and is being called to be a new covenant body of believers. We went through and we looked at how it was attached to this old covenant idea, but it was done away with because God had joined together the Jews and the Gentiles and made one new covenant people, a household and family of Christ. Over the last year, we've seen how this book was intimately linked with the letters to Timothy. As Paul tried to help train and mentor this poor young pastor through leading the growing church body in Ephesus, in the midst of what we can assume through those letters was heresy, division, and spiritual attack. And this book was linked with the history of Acts and the truth of the Gospels. And through it all, we see that it was encouraging and exhorting to the church at Ephesus to be that incarnate body of Christ. Just what was just read in 1 John that we might be as Jesus was in this world. No one has seen God, but by our love for one another, guess what they see? They see God. They see Jesus. Flip back there with me really quick to what Paul Paul just said as he read through this. Look at it again. Verse 12 of 1 John 4, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us. He lives in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, verse 13, and he in us, because he has given of us of his spirit. And guys, what is the context when he talks about giving his spirit? He's not talking about an intrinsic emotional feeling. He's talking about being joined to Christ and to his people. If we love one another, that's how we know we have the Spirit. I just read an article yesterday about a church in Kentucky that the pastor grabs rattlesnakes and runs around the room and doesn't get bit by the snakes and the Spirit's here. Is that what the showing of the Spirit is? No, 1 John says the showing of the Spirit is the love we have for one another. No one has seen God. But if we love one another, they have. Because we are the body of Christ incarnate in this world, just as he once was. And so we've seen this, that Paul was trying to build up a body of Christ that the surrounding world could look at and see who God is. Through the church, the world could see God's heart, his character, his love, his power, his plan. In Ephesus, possibly more than any other book of the New Testament, 
spoke of what a healthy church is supposed to be. Many people say, go to Acts to see what the church should be. But Acts was a transitionary period. This book, Ephesians, this is what the church should look like. And perhaps this is why in his commentary on the book that we've looked at throughout our journey, John Stott subtitles his commentary on Ephesians, God's New Society. He has a second commentary, and he he titled it, Building a Community of Faith. That's what this book is about. So let's recall what we've seen in this book by looking at the broad categories I've given you throughout the last year uh, that I had titled, The Marks of a Healthy Church According to Paul. The Marks of a Healthy Church According to Paul. The first thing that uh, that we saw early on was Jesus has to be at the core of a healthy church. The story of Jesus, his mission, his love, his work, his death, his victorious resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement, and coming return must be at the base of all we do. Not just his death, not just his resurrection, but all of it has to be at the base of what we do. If we become a therapeutic, deistic church, we have lost our prophetic voice in the world. Secondly, A healthy church, according to Paul, has an attitude of gratefulness. We saw this in chapter 1 moving into chapter 2. The gospel of Jesus is to transform us from a critical, complaining, discontent group of human beings wanting our own way into grateful children, thankful for God's grace, unified in his mission with one another. A church with an attitude of gratefulness. Third, we are to be motivated by the gospel. This was chapter two that so many of us love, that section moving out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, saved by grace, not by works. For what purpose? So that we might work on behalf of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has brought us out of that kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light in order to make us his citizens and his children And this redemption should motivate us in every part of our life. Amen? Amen. Fourth, it showed us that a healthy church identifies as a new covenant community. A new covenant community. In the church, God has done something new, but it is something that has been present in God's people since the beginning. When he first called Abraham, he entered into into relationship with him by way of what? Covenant. And God's people are to be a people that exist in faithful covenant with each other. We tell the world, God will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we should say the same about ourselves. We tell the world he is faithful to his covenant promises. And so we should be as well. We need to identify as a new covenant community. Fifth, a healthy church, according to Paul, is on mission to reveal God's wisdom. If you look back there at Ephesians 3, Ephesians 3 especially, verse 10, it says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church was not plan B for God. It was plan A to bring the gospel to the world. He didn't go, oh, we should do missionaries. Oh, wait, the missionaries are failing. I guess we'll do the church. Now, the whole point of missionaries is to take the gospel to establish local churches in every locale. That's why our mission strategy is not to send all of us genius white people over to Africa to help save all those poor people. It's to build up the pastors that are geniuses over there in the bush so that they can plant their local churches and build up the body of Christ incarnate in a given locale 
to show God's glory to the world, on mission to reveal God's wisdom. Sixth, what we saw is that a healthy church exists in the unity of the Spirit. We are human, and it takes us all being drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit for us to unify under the mission of Christ. We can't do it on our own. If we do it on our own, we go different ways. Yesterday at the member meeting, we did a little tug-of-war experiment. I was amazed to see Samantha Cavalli and how quickly she jumped up to jump on that. That girl has a competitive spirit, if I've ever seen one. She hopped up quick, and we got everybody on either side of the rope. And what we showed was if everybody pulls in the same direction, there's strength. But if everybody goes in different directions, you know how quickly that side will fall in tug-of-war. It's the same thing in the church. All of us gather Sunday and we go, okay, now we're done. Now let's all split in our different directions. But if we're not on the same mission, the kingdom of darkness pulls us over on the rope. We need to be given in the same mission and existing in the unity of the Spirit with Christ, with one another. Twelve times in Ephesians, Paul speaks of the work of God's Holy Spirit working through us, uniting us with Christ and with one another unites us together so that we might be propelled forward as that body of Christ, empowering us and calling us to be more like the Father, a church unified in the Spirit. Number seven, we saw that the Holy Spirit, He should be manifesting in us through the way we use our talents and our gifts and our personalities We are not to be a homogenous group of robots that all look the same. We are a body made up of a diversity of gifts that are to be used to build up the body so that it can more accurately reflect Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing to see people who are so different love each other so well, even though they don't understand. That's what shows the power of the Holy Spirit to the world that surrounds us. Number eight, we saw... That the church is to be full of regenerated regenerated lives. This is one of the reasons we implemented membership is, man, we've had so many great conversations with people. People that walk in every Sunday and we're here for years and we'd sit down with them in a chair and say, hey, tell us the gospel. And they'd say, "I, I don't know the gospel or I'm really struggling with how to say the gospel. And as elders, that was huge for us because we went, okay, now we know how to disciple you. People who hadn't been baptized, who wanted to be baptized, and we started to see this spark of regeneration within this church, that people wanted to have conversion. If we don't have regenerated lives, if it's basically like, well, I'm just kind of a little bit more moral now that I've accepted Jesus, guys, we're not a healthy church. And so we need to be a church full of regenerated lives, asking ourselves, am I regenerated by the Holy Spirit? And this will then affect our regenerated relationships. A church that is healthy, that transitions into regenerated relationships with one another and with our families and with our working relationships and friendships will show the world who Christ is. The image of Christ is bold in that kind of a church. Because just as the Trinity is diverse and yet unified, we are also diverse and yet unified. And number 10 we saw in the midst of Ephesians That a healthy church recognizes that they are engaged daily in spiritual warfare. We've spent the last month and a half on this. That through it all, we act with purpose and zeal, putting on our armor daily because we wage warfare against the one that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And we do so. We wage war by our love for Christ and for one another. We do so through prayer for one another in the Spirit. 
And so we finish our study of this letter today. And I want us to ask ourselves, Mission Fellowship, brothers and sisters who I love dearly, are we this church? When we look at this list, is this who we are becoming? I don't believe perfection can be arrived at in this life until Christ comes to rule and reign. But are we on the trajectory that shows that we are attempting to be this church? Is this who we are? I want every one of us to ponder that this week. That's your application point for today. Are we becoming this church? And if not, I want you to ask the question individually, how do I help us get here? How do I participate in that? Are we individual members that contribute to this vision of the church as a body, encouraging and building one another up? To admit our need of one another in the midst of the body, to admit our need to experience the love of the Holy Spirit through his indwelling presence in others, brings with it so much strength and healing, church. To admit that you need one another. And it brings with it the ability to properly reflect Christ's loving heart for the world. Sadly, in much of the American church, this view of the body of Christ has been watered down, if not altogether lost or cast aside. And so we've seen that the message Paul was trying to convey is needed just as much now as in the first century so that the world might catch an accurate picture of Christ. I want to remind you of a quote I used a year ago by commentator Max Turner when we started this book. Listen closely. This letter challenges the pietistic individualism and corresponding weak doctrine of the church that we so often find in evangelicalism. Don't look at the church, we say. Look at Christ. Paul, however, expected the outsider to see Christ and God's unifying purpose for the world precisely in the church. Ephesians challenges all of us to find better ways of making our local church real communities of people whose lives and worship together as a church witness to the cosmic unity begun in Christ and are deeply imbued with his presence. Here's what I followed up with one year ago before so much pain and heartache as we took hard steps of moving this church forward with a stronger covenant devotion to one another. I said this, Our leadership's goal for this church, much like Paul and Timothy's goal for the church of Ephesus, is that we become a truly healthy church that doesn't measure our health by numbers of attendees on a Sunday or consumeristic strategies that we build to please as many people as possible, nor on emotionally based worship. But rather, we want to measure ourselves by the marks of a healthy church laid out for us in Scripture. Mission Fellowship, so many of you have begun to grapple with and hold on to the fact that we are only as good as we are together. So many of you are seeing the truth that we need one another. And I would say to those of you in this body who have lasted this last year with that mindset, well done. Your endurance encourages and builds up one another in ways you can't even imagine. Well done. You've learned that an individualistic, avoidant Christianity that holds people at arm's length, it might still be Christianity, but it is devoid of the power that Christ intends. And Paul knew this even in his own life. Here in Ephesians, what we see is Paul's own life models that we need each other. That's my second point. You can write that down. Paul's own life models that we need each other. 
Whenever you see at the end of the books, Paul talking about his companions, he uses words like beloved, brother, sister, kinsman. Paul was sending here one of his closest companions, Tychicus, to encourage a church caught in the middle of spiritual warfare. And this was a regular strategy of Paul throughout the churches he planted, to send another brother to encourage them with stories of how the kingdom was advancing. At the end of some of his letters, especially Romans, there is a heartfelt and deep salutation that speaks to his close relationships to his brothers and sisters that were active in battle with him. Paul loved his people. He calls them beloved and kinsmen, fellow workers, as I said. And this makes sense because he was following after Jesus. Jesus was not a man who floated with sunken eyes and a sad, melancholy expression who kept everyone 10 feet away at all times. Jesus was a man who was constantly loving and being loved by those around him. He was constantly showing the image of God, a relational God. Often I find myself picturing Paul as a pioneer striking out by himself, but Paul always had people around him. Paul is the one that wrote 1 Corinthians 13. Would you turn there with me really quick? 1 Corinthians 13. And look there especially at verse 4. He says in the first three verses, I can do all these crazy, cool, spiritual things, have knowledge, speak in tongues, do this stuff, but if I don't have love, it's nothing. He speaks of love as the still more excellent way. He says in verse 4, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Wasn't it nice of Paul to write a section of Scripture that was to be used exclusively at weddings? (laughs) Now guys, this point had nothing to do with marriage. That's not the context. Can you take it and use it for marriage? Absolutely, because marriage should have love. His context was for how the church is to love one another. Paul wrote this chapter to a church that was so caught up in the cool signs and gifts and mystical experiences and feelings that they were missing out on the core experience that God desired for them. Guys, what was that experience? Go back with me to Ephesians. Go back there with me to Ephesians 3.16. Paul is praying for them. And what does he pray for them that he wants them to experience? Verse 16, that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know, to know 
That's an experiential note. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How does it surpass knowledge? By experience. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What did 1 John say? How do we know God abides in us? By our love one for another. And that's why he then goes on into chapter 4 to say, guys, here's how you do it. Walk, therefore, in a manner worthy of the calling by being unified in the Spirit, by loving one another. What was the experience Paul prayed for? That they would know the love of Christ through one another. And I pray often that this same experience is what we find here at Mission. And that as others come through our doors, this is what they experience as well here in our new building, in our community groups, in our discipleship groups with one another. And as you interact individually day to day with people who are lost and dying, I pray that they would have the experience in human relationship to know who God is. You see, human relationship is what shows the incorruptible love of God. Let me tell you what I mean. How many times have you seen in your life or in others that how they view their parents is how they view God? Any of you ever seen that? An authoritarian father means God is authoritarian. A parent who is distant and not present means God is distant and not present. And I believe this is why, as we've previously discussed, that the hinge law in the Ten Commandments is to honor your mother and father as they properly reflect God. It's based in the context of the great Shema, that they would teach their children the ways of Yahweh. And so it stands to reason, then, that the way we operate in earthly relationships will greatly affect how we relate to God and how we shine Him outwardly. This is why Jesus stepped in the flesh to show people in physical experience, physical relationship, who God the Father is. And so all of us have ways we relate and attach to others, and it largely has to do with past experiences and how that mixes together with our self-protection strategies and our personalities. These are called, in the psychology world, attachment styles, how we relate Attachment styles are largely broken down into four groups and can be graphed by your intrinsic feelings towards yourself or others. And I know that some of you have never even thought about this before, and so this might be new for you. But trust me, it ties into our teaching wonderfully. There are four basic attachment styles that have been identified as sociologists and psychologists have looked at people. The first one you see there down in the bottom right is called chaotic or disorganized. And what you see on the axes there is up at the top you see a view of self. If you have a high view of self, low view of self, and then view of others on the left side. If you have both a low view of yourself and a low view of others, in other words, I am inferior, no one actually will get anything from me because I have nothing to offer, and a low view of others, people always hurt. You most likely have what's called a chaotic or disorganized attachment style. You need people badly and you know it because you're made in the image of God and you want the relationship, but you know they're going to hurt you, so you keep them at distance. A child who does this is the child who's in class crying for mom and mom comes and what do they do to mom? They get mad and start hitting mom because they don't know how the world works and so they're constantly insecure. The second one you see there, anxious or preoccupied, the fear of abandonment. This is when... You have a very high view of others. You need them so badly and you want them in your life and you don't worry about whether they'll hurt you or not, but you have a low view of self and you think, I am so inferior, no one will ever want me. When this is translated to how we relate to God, folks who with this kind of attachment style, they're the folks who are working their tails off trying to please God because God's never pleased with them and they're so scared that God is going to leave them. 
Over there in the bottom left, you have avoidant dismissing. This is the person who has a very high view of self because they are a survivor. They have made it through. And yet, they have a low view of others because people always hurt you. And so those are folks who come across as confident, thinking that they're secure, but they hold people at a distance and they never let people in except through doors that they've created. And this is avoidant. This oftentimes translates to avoiding intimacy with God. You see this often in a lot of the high church churches where people are very comfortable doing religious rites, but the idea of an intimate relationship with God, that does not translate. One day I hope to do some study around denominational lines and how they are very much parallel with attachment styles. Those who are preoccupied love the emotional feeling you get with God. They can be intimate with God. The idea of avoidant tradition, that holds them at bay. Those who often act in avoidant, they love the religious right, but they can't stand the idea of an intimate feeling with God. But there in the top left, you have what's called secure. And these folks are folks who have a ton of stuff that I am just now starting to understand in my life because, guys, I was in the bottom right about as far bottom right as you could get. And the Lord has brought me through that and brought others in this church through that. These are folks that at any given time, they or another can be wrong and broken, but the people are secure enough in their relationship that there's no need for self-protection or passive aggressiveness. One expert puts it this way, they don't need to worry too much about other people leaving them or about getting hurt in relationships. They know that they can tolerate such pain if it comes, so they are free to be themselves and not behave in an overly needy, aggressive, or demanding fashion. Because their emotions are mirrored accurately, they acquire the ability not only to regulate, but to accurately identify and label their own emotional experiences. The ability to recognize and label one's personal emotional experiences in turn is a prerequisite for being able to accurately recognize and understand the emotional experiences of others. An ability that we commonly refer to as empathy. By extension, people with high awareness of emotions in themselves and who are empathetic are able to sustain more deeply rewarding interpersonal relationships. Those who are secure and faithful in commitment and know that relationships will resolve because they're committed to it, they are a person who can hear the truth of who God is, the God of Exodus 34, not through the filter of their feelings, but just as it is, and realize he is a God who both loves and hates sin. He loves people and yet hates sin. These are the people that are secure in their relationship with him and know that because he will never leave nor forsake, they simply have to keep pursuing and growing and enduring, and they know that they will always be safe in his love. Anybody want that in here? Now, guys, you might be pausing and thinking, wait a minute, did we step into a therapeutic church? This sounds like a lot of psychology. Guys, the reason pastors do so much counseling is the two are intrinsically linked. This shows how people are created and how they respond in life, but the reality is, is one of the main reasons Jesus came was to tell us of the love of the Father, that division and relationship no longer needed to have power. And I believe that the relationships that Paul is calling the church at Ephesus to are these faithful and secure relationships. He's calling them to move from their places of previous experiences and previous understandings that are holding them at distance from one another and calling them into faithful commitment to God and to one another. These are the relationships of 1 Corinthians 13. These are the relationships that speak of the love that 1 John spoke of. 
This is the love that reflects God's steadfast love that endures forever. This is the love that was shown by Christ who gave his life for us on the cross of Calvary to purchase us from our sins and resurrect us to life everlasting. This is the love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the love that never ends, the love that is incorruptible. Dear church, you know how you get to this place of secure relationships, of overcoming past hurtful experiences? It comes by admitting we are broken in how we relate to one another and to pursue new experiences of actual biblical love. It's very simple. Try it with your kids. Put a plate of cookies out, and every time they reach for it, slap their hand. What are they eventually going to do? Stop grabbing for cookies. But then if you allow them to have even one experience that they can grab a cookie and they won't get slapped, what will they probably end up start, start doing? They'll probably grab more cookies. It's the same thing in relationship, folks. If you have been hurt by other people, first let me ask you, raise your hand if you've ever been hurt by another human being. Guess what the only way of overcoming that is? Is to have new experiences with people who, even if they do hurt you, will stay committed to you, love you, repent to you, and walk through it with you. By diving into committed, faithful relationships without pretext, without qualification, and working through conflict, speaking truth and love, combating sin when it comes in the midst of relationship, by doing these things, we will start to see that love incorruptible that God has towards us and we have towards him. It's a love that does not change because of circumstance or because of temporal conflict. It's a love that is incorruptible. And I've been so blessed to witness that occurring among many of you in your friendships and marriages, even in the midst of a lot of relational hurt this last year. One of the people I've been blessed to watch come to the realization of the truth that we're talking about today is our operations coordinator, or our OC as we call her, Sarah Campbell. Sarah's going to come on up, and she's going to share a short testimony with you from this kind of a context with us today. And I want you to listen, because Sarah's going to be very vulnerable, and she's going to give you a very deep part of who she is. But the reason that she felt called to come do this today is because, as she said to me yesterday, so many people have been harmed in churches, and I want them to know that church can be a different way. She loves you guys, and she wants to share with you. So let's give her your attention. Hello. How are all of you? Hans's thing is really tall. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, let's get started. It's a rare thing in our day and age to experience a genuine biblical love, a love that elevates the well-being of others above self, a love that challenges a love that encourages, and a love that leaves room for repentance. A love that stays when mistakes are made. This is the love that we all desire, but are scarcely offered by our modern culture. This love is the way of Jesus. It is gospel love. And gospel love, rightly lived out and effectively communicated, changes people. It's changed me. Before we go any further, I want to clear the air around the concept of struggle. As humans, we often fall prey to thinking, if life isn't easy, then something must be going wrong. And while this is true in many cases, we can't apply this logic to all forms of struggle. There is struggle that exists from willing participation in sin, either by us or by those around us. And there is struggle that exists from fighting our way out of sin. 
The former leads to destruction, and the latter leads to sanctification. We do well to remember that while sanctification is painful, it is very different than the suffering that exists because of the problem of human evil. Nonetheless, emotional anguish, good or bad, causes us to wrestle with who we are, and more importantly, who God is. It often raises the question, why does a good God allow us to experience pain? The question itself is not without merit. We see from the story of Jacob that wrestling with God often leads to blessing. And so, at times, we must press into the pain and ask these difficult questions. But we must not lose sight of the truth of Scripture as we do. It was Jackie Hill Perry who so aptly stated, If I put my feelings above Scripture, I'm going to be led to death every single time. My story of wrestling with God began long before I knew how to put words to it. My relationship with Jesus started when I was 13, and in five short years, it was already being dismantled. My home growing up, riddled with trauma and dysfunction, left something to be desired. Abuse, divorces, and deaths left me searching for something to ease the pain, but nothing worked. The older I got, the more depraved my coping skills became. Washing my hands didn't keep me safe, but maybe a sexually unhealthy relationship would. And when that didn't work, I thought maybe harming myself was a suitable alternative. But that left me feeling just as empty as before, and the mess growing inside of me just kept getting bigger. In the aftermath of my destructive behaviors, I found myself being cast out of the only church I had ever called home. As I spiraled down into a deep depression, I tried to make sense of these warring worlds that had been created in my mind the goodness of Jesus, and the mess that is his church. What I learned about Jesus in my Bible classes, I found him compelling. He was compassionate, loving, and just. He looked on the broken and rejected with favor. And yet, most of the people I knew who claimed to follow him demonstrated just the opposite. Not ready to fully engage in the struggle out of my sin, I resigned to keeping people at arm's length, which was also where I kept God. Five years down the road, I had come to terms with the injustice I'd faced as a child. I started to move on with life in what I thought was a healthy way. I figured the best way to reconcile the hurt I'd experienced was to choose a career fighting against it. But I graduated from college during a recession, and things weren't going as planned. At best, I was haphazardly following Jesus, but really had no interest in serving him as king. Life led me back to Salem, where I would coincidentally run into some pretty great people who had spent a lot of time pouring into me in high school. That guy. (laughs) And Kelly, of course, his better half. Uh, I came to mission the next Sunday, and then I kept coming back. My relationship with Hans and Kelly didn't skip a beat. They were still every bit as kind and caring as I remembered. My involvement with the church grew, and so did my relationship with Jesus. When I was asked to come on staff, I was excited. Once on staff, it wasn't long before the excitement wore off and fear set in. I wondered what unforgivable deed I would do that would lead to the demise of my relationship with Hans and Kelly and all of the people I was starting to love. So I did what I knew to do. I tried to ruin my life before my life could ruin me. When constructive criticism was offered, I took up arms against it. When my distorted thoughts told me I was going to be fired, I tried to quit. Which is true. You can ask Hans. (laughs) I fought everything that came my way, good or bad. I threw tantrums. And when I least deserved it, Hans and Kelly, Tyler and Sarah, and Dallas and Whitney were all at my side. Extending forgiveness, recognizing those behaviors were a byproduct of the dysfunction that I grew up in, and reminding me that my identity was found in Jesus 
and not in all the lies I had come to believe about myself. And when I was ready, they lovingly offered me correction and called me out of my sinful habits and back into the light. This was and is love incorruptible come to life. Love incorruptible is the reason I am standing here now. Love incorruptible drove me to therapy. Love incorruptible is present as I attempt to implement all the new relational skills I have learned. Love incorruptible is grace and compassion. It is so good, but love incorruptible can also be painful. It sanctifies. It calls us away from ourselves, away from our lives given over to sin. In our moments of weakness, it reminds of us It reminds us of who is king and what our purpose is on earth. It paints a stark contrast between itself and the false love the world has to offer, calling us to abandon our former habits to receive new life in Christ. The turning point point in my decision to live obediently to Yahweh came when I was surrounded by people who loved me enough to tell me I was sinning and then stick around for the fallout. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve carried out the ultimate act of rebellion. They looked around the perfect world God had given them and decided that they knew better. They knew what was good. The consequences were grave. For thousands of years, the Israelites tried to make reparations to experience unity with Yahweh, but they failed. Ultimately, he would send his only son to live a sinless life, die on our behalf, resurrect, and ascend to his right hand, the utmost act of love for his undeserving and rebellious creation. It was this same Jesus who reminded his disciples in Matthew 18, 21 through 22, that forgiveness is limitless for those who walk in true repentance. If the perfect son of God can strive with the people who sent him to his death, then how much more should we struggle together with our co-laborers in Christ? It is by this incorruptible love that the world will know we belong to our king. As I've invited many of you into my struggles, I've also had the privilege of walking alongside you in yours. And it has been an honor. I'm so thankful to be part of this church family that aims to be known for its incorruptible love. Thank you for loving me well. Genuinely, thank you. And thank you for letting me share with you today. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Christ's death, resurrection, Ascension and enthronement takes care of the legal ramifications of our sin against a holy God. It makes us righteous in God's eyes. It cleanses us from all sin and it brings us into the family of God. It is surely not less than that. But it is so much more. It also eternally proclaims to every one of us that we are unimaginably loved by a God who will never leave us. Unfortunately, it is us who turn our backs on him and on one another. The gospel proclaims that he is calling us into relationship with him, and that same call then calls us into relationship with one another. To properly respond to that love requires us to love Christ with a love that starts now and never ends. It never diminishes. It never stalls. It never is choked out by the cares of this world or the latest game on TV or the kids' soccer schedules, or what have you. It doesn't get choked out by the idols that we have access to. Church, if you don't know Jesus, if you're a person that doesn't know Jesus and you want to know him, please come talk to one of us. We want to help you understand what it is to walk with Jesus today, to accept that gospel truth.
Dear church, we must understand that to properly proclaim the God who gives us this kind of love is by loving one another with this same kind of incorruptible love. A love that does not change or dissipate based on circumstances or conflict or misperception or confusion or feelings or church hearing something you don't want to hear from somebody else. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Mature is the person who can hear that wounded statement, that wounding statement. It's a love that begins now and continues into eternity. It's a love that requires both encouragement and truth and sometimes truth that is hard to hear because it calls us to greater sanctification. It is a faithfulness that does not fail. It is a commitment to Christ and to one another that we will all pull all together towards Christ even when it's hard. It's a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's a love that's incorruptible. And so I want to finish this book with this call. Let's make mission a church defined by our incorruptible love for Christ and one another. Let's make mission a church defined by our incorruptible love for Christ and one another.